Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and today we are joined... I'm sorry, I forgot to announce the date. That's very unusual for me. Today is the 4th of June, 2014, and today we're joined on the line by Matthew Slater of mattslats.net. That's M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S dot net, and very attentive Corbett Report listeners might remember Matthew Slater from way back two and a half years ago on Corbett Report Radio, episode number 57, which of course we will link in the show notes for this conversation. Uh, That was a wide-ranging conversation in and of itself where we talked about complementary currencies, local currencies. We talked about uh, the gifting, uh, radical gifting. We talked about uh, the the problem of organizing a community community currency or the problem of transitioning off of money altogether. A very wide-ranging and interesting conversation, so it's good to have Matthew back on the program for today. And for people who don't know, Matthew Slater is a community currency engineer, and he is the uh, the programmer behind a Drupal module called the Community Accounting, which offers uh, accounting software for co- complementary currencies, virtual currencies, community exchanges, time banks, barter exchanges, and community uh, currencies. And that is available, again, from mattslats.net. So, Matthew Slater, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It is such an honor to have your ear. <laughs> well, it's an honor to have your mouth, and let's make the most <laughs> use of it that we can. And uh, in order to do so, I mean, let's pick up from where we left off with our last conversation. And if people can cast their minds back two and a half years, or if they want to go and re-listen to that conversation, we did touch on the fact that you were, yourself were sort of a, an, an experiment in the, the idea of the radical gifting uh, economy, uh, something, something of a nomad um, working for free and, uh, and, and somehow managing to, to continue living um, d- despite everything we're told about how that shouldn't be possible. Or as you put it on your website, quote, I work my ass off and live by gifts as much as possible. Actually, you write the funny British spelling of ass, but I, I won't put on my Queen's English accent. But uh, but absolutely, um, a, a fascinating idea. And here we are two and a half years later, and you're still alive. So I guess that must be working out for you. Yeah, and I'm still well fed, and I'm still not doing any work for people I don't like. I'm still concentrating on building accounting systems and installing them and getting to know the users and visiting them. Uh, and now I've, uh, I'm working on the largest system in the world, which I mentioned two years ago as well, the community exchange systems. And this has got 600 registered exchanges and tens of thousands of users. And it's migrating onto the platform that I develop on, Drupal. So the, the idea is that instead of using my Drupal module for a community to set up its own currency, um, we're going to build a, a network where all the communities come onto the one platform and they can trade between each other. Furthermore, with a little support, we're going to implement an API so that communities not living on the same platform will be able to trade in the same network as well, all without money. Wow, that that is truly remarkable and such an important step because it's the uh, it's one of the questions that cr- almost inevitably comes up when you start talking about the idea of local currencies um, with people. It's well, yes, that's that's well and fine for if I want to buy something in town, but what about what about linking up with a larger economy? As we discussed again in our last conversation, we are so tied into the global economy that, as you pointed out in that conversation, I don't know people around me who who grow garlic. We get our garlic from China if uh, if the 
global economy collapsed, we would just have to go without garlic because uh, until someone could figure out a way to start growing it. Um, and, and of course, that's just one tiny part of this macrocosmic problem of how do we link these these local isolated currencies and communities together. Uh, that sounds very exciting. So I'm assuming that's communityforge.net that you're talking about? Well, communityforge.net is providing free sites for individual communities, but the community exchange systems, it's communityexchange.org, has been around for longer than Community Forge and is larger, and they've done a much better job of building the network because it already exists. Um, all I'm doing is building the next generation of software so that it can be open sourced and invite many more contributions to help its growth. Well, that, that is such an exciting project, and it sounds so wonderful. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about Community Exchange and how it came about? Community Exchange Systems. Um, well, there was a, a very um, little appreciated activist in South Africa. He was jailed for uh, helping the ANC with leaflet bombs. So he would uh, print some leaflets and plant them in a marketplace, and it would explode in a flurry of paper. Uh, and it would be talking about ANC, and he was arrested for that and famously escaped from jail by forging uh, 10 keys to get out of the Pretoria prison. And then when the ANC got into power, they gave him a nice job managing their website, and he looked at the situation afresh and understood that the banks were running everything, and really uh, nothing in South Africa could really change while that was the case. And so he did what I did several years later, which is to start to build some exchange software so that people can issue credit to each other instead of relying on the, the state-controlled commercial bank credit, which they call legal tender. So it's very much a peer-to-peer -peer credit network. And he built that in Cape Town and connected with other communities in South Africa and expanded the software out. And uh, this project has relied completely on him for uh, well over 10 years. And uh, it's now used all over the world. There's, there's 200 registered communities in Spain where I am now, and that's a third of everything. There's many in Australia. Uh, the Time Banking Network in Australia has chosen it, and it's them that's providing the funding to take it to the next level. Now, you pointed this out in a recent email to me, and I, I have no idea about this project, but I want to hear about it for at uh, timebanking.com.au, which you describe as the time banking network for the Australian government. Uh, tell us about that project. Well, the time banks is a concept designed by Edgar Kahn, who's a, a lawyer in New York, and he set up Time Banks USA. And... These are local community exchange networks which use ours as their uh, measure of value or their currency. Um, but very often they are funded by the government and used for social projects. So they help um, socially disadvantaged people to support each other. And this is what's happening in Britain as Time Banks UK. It's very like that and also in Australia. So the New South Wales government has a time banking program. It's a way of delivering services to the poor or helping the poor to deliver services to each other because it's cheaper that way. Uh, and they've invested uh, several hundred thousand uh, Australian dollars over several years to provide the software for this. So it count it's within my remit because it's community exchange accounting. 
but it's not really the, the grassroots that um, I really want to support. That's happening in CES, where communities are springing up without government uh, oversight and uh, creating accounts in the system and starting to trade amongst themselves. But these communities are very rarely funded by anything. They just run themselves through volunteer effort, which is, of course, what I want to support, really. Well, I, absolutely, and I understand that, and I, I certainly applaud that, but uh, it's just surprising to me that, uh, again, an, uh, a government would, would be funding something like that and would be uh, a, attempting to create that infrastructure, of course, perhaps for their own reasons. As you say, it's cheaper just to get uh, poor people helping poor people rather than actually... Well, they, they don't think of it as money, yeah. um, and, and it's taxed differently. When the governments have actually said something about the taxability in these systems... They generally say that um, if you're measuring it in hours, then it's a volunteering time, and so it's not taxable. But if you're measuring in a currency that's convertible or measurable in something else, generally you have to pay tax on the, the work that you do. All right. I, I feel that we may have jumped into this conversation in the middle because uh, I just got finished re-listening to our last conversation. So I, I uh, maybe I'm am, am assuming a little too much from the audience here. Why don't we back up a little and just go over something that you, you mentioned earlier, to the idea of people issuing credit to each other rather than relying on financial institutions to be the, the middlemen in that process. And that is such an important part of the idea of what we can do to change our fundamental thinking about what money is and how it can function. For people who don't know, of course, we often say in the alternative media that the banks create money out of nothing. Uh, but I, I actually, I go with Paul Grignon on this, who says, no, that's not quite it. It's more nuanced than that. The banks create money out of the, the obligation that you will pay them back, that you will commit however many years of your life to paying them back. That's, that's what backs up our money, is our own labor. And uh, Paul Grignon's point is then to go on and, and, uh, and argue for a system of self-issued credit. Um, I, I understand you work more in terms of mutual credit, but I think the idea is still there, that credit is not in an of itself a bad thing, but when it is controlled by the financial institutions exclusively for their use and, at, of course, uh, with interest, it, it creates this parasitic economy. Let's talk about some of the issues and uh, unpack this idea of credit and how it really underlies the, the economy. Well, yes, I'm really keen to get to the bottom of that. Um, first of all, I would like to point out that money issued out of nothing is fiat currency. And uh, there are some very serious people, in my view serious, who are suggesting that we should be using genuine fiat currency, that uh, it is the responsibility of the government to issue money out of nothing, because then it's free and the government is representing the people. Now, I think that's not very practical and governments, uh, very few governments actually represent the people. So it's not a strategy I'm supporting, but uh, as a viable economic model, uh, in another time and place, maybe so. Um, what we have to do if we can't trust our institutions to issue money is to start trusting each other to, uh, to issue credit. And that means I'll give you something and then you remember it somehow and then you give me something back. And we can do this not in, only in bilateral relations because obviously that's incredibly inefficient and difficult but we need to build networks of trust or marketplaces where we commonly agree to use a unit of exchange. And if someone defaults in a situation like that, in practice, it doesn't happen very often. 
but you have uh, ways of deciding uh, who will bear the cost of that default. Uh, and in a mutual credit system, everyone bears the cost. But in a self-issued credit system, whoever is actually holding that issuer's currency will uh, take the hit as well. And so in a self-issued credit system, they're much more complicated to run because every issuer is actually issuing their own currency. So you can have many, many currencies uh, sitting alongside one another. And this is what Paul Grignon is proposing with his digital coin. You have computers to manage it, but it's, it's actually very complicated. All the currencies are floating against each other according to the trust which uh, is generally felt in each and every issuer. And when you do a transaction, in theory, you would have to decide which currencies you want to take because you trust those issuers. Does that make sense? It does to me because I'm familiar with digitalcoin.info and uh, the, the excellent work Paul Grignon's put into it. But it's a very complicated idea. So I think we might have to direct people to DigitalCoin for more info on that. But yes, the, the basic po point of what uh, Paul Grignon is saying is that in such an economy, you could, for example, you could say, well, I don't support Walmart and their, their labor practices, so I'm not going to accept their currency. I'm not going to accept any money that's come through them, which is a pretty, exactly. uh, it's a pretty radical idea and, uh, of course, unthinkable in our current system where everything is just issued um, with the, uh, the paper gloss of the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or what, what, what have you. Yes, and I'd like to say something about Bitcoin as well. There is so much attention gone on to Bitcoin since we last spoke. But Bitcoin is not about issuing credit between the people. Bitcoin is more like a fiat currency, and it's a commodity currency. Have you come across the dichotomy, James, that uh, currencies can behave like commodities or like credit, one or the other? I, I've, I, I'm familiar with the idea that currencies can be backed up by fiat or by, by commodities, but I've never, I, I don't know about the difference in how they function. Mm -hmm. Well, I read this book some time ago called The Lost Science of Money by Stephen Zarlinger, who went on to found the American Monetary Institute, which is now advocating for, um, I think, a genuine fiat currency system in the United States. But the lost science of money is really about the distinction between credit money and commodity money. And commodity money means uh, usually that it's backed and always that it is scarce. And one of the properties of commodity money is that rich people control it and that you can make money just from having commodity money. It, the, the, the money is an asset in itself. And so... People want to have the money. In a credit money system, it's not actually worth anything in itself. So you can hold it and you can be sort of rich if you hold a lot of it. But you're only rich because of the claim it gives you on the goods and services of society. You're not rich because, because the credit money yields more credit money. Uh, and so the people in um, Bitcoin, people who are concentrating on commodity currencies, it's as if they think that... A good currency is one that makes money by itself without producing any goods and services or doing any valuable work, as if it was possible to make money from money. I think this is a very big mistake which many people are making. And uh, a lot of the um, young, technical, very clever people have jumped onto the Bitcoin bandwagon and they've seen that, uh, yes, you can have this global transaction ledger and yes, we don't have to depend on banks anymore. 
but it's still very much within the commodity currency paradigm. And it still uh, tends towards making a few people rich and leaving everybody else with a shortage of the means of exchange. Well, I, I agree completely about the fundamental kind of downfall or, or pitfalls of, of Bitcoin and, and what it's actually doing. And the, the, the fact that I, I can't remember the percentage, but something, some ridiculously large amount of Bitcoin is owned by the same handful of people. And, and we don't know who those are, but the same addresses. And uh, we know that the FBI, for example, through its seizures actually holds a significant amount of the, uh, the total Bitcoin in existence. So as you're exactly right, as a commodity money uh, or, or one that's treated as such, it fundamentally is one that, that functions by scarcity. And uh, that's that's its main selling point at this point. Um, I, I think it's radical and revolutionary for the technology of the blockchain and what that enables. But yes, it is being used in the service of another commodity money, which is not necessarily what we want. And certainly not, I think, what we want at the base of our, our transactions, the base of our economic existence, um, which, of course, leads to the question, is it possible to create that type of system but in a non-commodity way, is it possible to create the Bitcoin of credit currency? Oh, well, there is one. Uh, it's called Ripple. Have you heard of that? I've heard of it, but I don't really know how it functions. Ripple was designed long before Bitcoin and before cryptocurrencies. And it was designed as a way to make a scalable mutual credit network. Um, and it aims to be one massive global network. And you create an account on it and your friends create accounts on it. And then you tell Ripple who you trust and how much for in any currency you like. And then that means that you can pass debts through the network. It has a, a route finding algorithm. So the idea is you can pay anybody else on the Ripple network as long as it can find a trust path between you and them. And then you're not paying them by passing some actual money along, uh, like from a one bank account to another. You're paying them just by a promise. And your promise is guaranteed by your friend, which is guaranteed by their friend, which is guaranteed by the recipient. They trust it. And so you, you, you're ex moving debts around rather than moving the commodity around. And there's a, a great advantage to trading in this way with credit, um, which is that you don't have to earn it before you spend it. With a commodity currency, you start with zero, and you have to go up in your balance before you go down. But when you have access to credit, you can spend first and then earn it back later, which is a very great freedom if you wanted to, say, build a business. And that's, so that's exactly another... that's exactly how our, our currencies function these days. It's just that in this system that we're in, you have to go cap in hand to the bank to try to, you know, uh, get them to, to lend you the money and, of course, to pay them back at interest for the next several years or decades of your life. Exactly. Well, I, I'm on board with these ideas, and I'm certainly going to check out the Ripple Network because that, that does sound like a very revolutionary idea, but it does bring to my mind the question, it seems like the debt is never really expunged from that system then, so it just continues to grow and grow and, and sh get shifted around? In Ripple? In Ripple. Um, no, no, the debts cancel each other out all the time. So as much as I earn from somebody, I'm likely to spend with somebody else. So I can promise, uh, I can guarantee my friends for a certain amount, but then no money or even credit changes hands. You're just widening the pathway which the credit can go along. 
Does that make sense? I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. So what if I went into the Ripple network and say I trust everyone for, you know, a billion dollars? Wouldn't that just put that much kind of trust in the system so everyone could could do anything? It gets more complicated than that. Because <laughs> I, the, I hope the, so. <laughs> the, um, the dollars that you trust, uh, that, uh, that you issue, as they were, can be actually sold on markets. So in Ripple, you can then go and you can sell Matthew dollars for James dollars. And there's a price between them. And in practice, uh, the Ripple network is so um, small at the moment that you could hardly imagine a market building up between Matthew dollars and James dollars. But the point is uh, that the market is there for price discovery to take place. So if, you, if you're over-issuing dollars and over-trusting people, then you're going to lose the confidence uh, very quickly and your dollars won't be worth very much. Yes, so there, there is that balance in the system. That sounds, so I, I understand that again from, from the digital coin type idea. So if you're, uh, there's, there's always that, that balance that tends towards parity with the, uh, the unit of account. Um, well, of course, you're talking about currency, um, uh, credit currency versus a uh, commodity currency. Um, I, I like the distinction that Paul Grignon uses talking about the three different sort of modes or functions of money as unit of, uh, unit of exchange, unit of account, and store of wealth. And those three, I think, functions can be separated out. I don't know how, how that plays into the commodity credit currency distinction or if that's, that's sort of a different issue. Um, no, it, it overlaps because the, uh, the store of wealth is a commodity. And if you think that the, the real responsibility of money and currency is to flow, then you don't use a store of wealth for that. Of course, all those functions are collapsed in the, in the national currencies we use now. But a medium of exchange currency is different to a commodity currency. If you were to design a medium of exchange currency and ignore the store of value function, you might build in a negative interest rate. And that means that if you try to hold a lot to get rich by, by holding it, then the value would go down over time. And the negative interest rate, sometimes called demurrage, would encourage people to spend the money and to circulate it, which is what the money is supposed to be doing. So an exchange currency might have very different properties to a commodity currency if you were to design them separately. You know, on that very note, uh, people might be interested to note that the European Central Bank is panicking about the lack of inflation in the Eurozone right now. So they're likely uh, at their monetary policy meeting tomorrow, they're likely to set uh, negative inflation rates uh, at the ECB. So again, to get that money moving around. So um, again, uh, just a real world example of that that concept. Well, we're kind of dancing around, I think, what is the central issue in all of this? We keep going back to it in, in a lot of different, from a lot of different directions. And that's what what is money and what should it, what should it be for? What do we want money to actually do? Do we want it just to be that, that store of value that sits, sits in a bank or sits in a ground or sits in a vault and, and does nothing and that somehow we make our living from just the existence of that 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 item or do we want it to be some sort of productive tool that helps in actually furthering uh, whatever work that we are trying to accomplish or whatever it is we're trying to do on this planet and I, I imagine that most people 
if, if they stop and think about it, would realize that we, we want money to be, to be uh, furthering of those productive ends more so than just something that sits in the ground. So let's start, start talking about that. And, and I'd like to, to bring this back to a post that's uh, on your blog at, again, at mattslats.net. It's called The Many Meanings of Money, in which you uh, jot down some sentiments which might be expressed uh, uh, to describe the giving of money to someone, not simply just a, uh, a settling of debt, but for example, some of the, uh, the the sentiments that you write here, I have given you money equal in value to the product service that you have me, so we are even. I give you this money in recognition of the value you bring to me or the value you bring to the universe. I am recognizing, rewarding you for the value you create. You need this money more than I do. This is an incentive for you to continue doing what you do. This proves I am wealthier than you, luckier than you, better than you. I reimburse some costs you incurred on my behalf. I believe in your ability to return it with interest. I don't know, I don't have time to get you, uh, to get you something personal. You know better than me what you most need want. This settling of account is enforced by the state for legal tender money. Lots of different conceptions of money um, and on lots of different ways that we use money uh, prop up in our daily life that we don't really differentiate, but it might be useful for us to do so the next time that we're actually conducting a transaction to be aware of what it's actually doing in our lives. And I think that's perhaps a launching point for the discussion of, of what really is money at its base and what we want it to be. I think there are certain um, statements in there that I, I don't think we, we uh, most people would say they want to be the uh, the aim of, of their monetary transactions, but nevertheless is. I mean, this proves I'm wealthier than you, or this settling of account is enforced by the state is not necessarily as noble an idea as um, I am recognizing you for the value you create. So let's talk about how we can different, differentiate those meanings of money and, and perhaps bake that into the cake with a different monetary system. I'm glad you raised that point. Um, I think if we regard money as a tool and then we look at our social situations, we can then design the right tools to help with those social situations. And it doesn't work that way at all at the moment. We have one tool and one standard of value and one way of transacting, and it sort of all goes in together. Um, right now I'm touring eco-villages in Spain, and I'm looking at their internal economies. And I'm not suggesting to all of them that they should create a credit clearing system or a mutual credit currency to help manage their economies because most of them are not doing that kind of direct exchange and they're not trying to account for every minute of time they contribute to the community or to each other. And in situations like that where you have a community where there's a lot of trust and they rely on each other and they work together, a currency isn't really going to help. It's just going to add an accounting burden uh, and then maybe create disagreements later on. The currency is a much more useful tool when people don't know each other as well. And so uh, that's why I'm working in uh, community exchange systems at uh, the global level to see how we can join the communities together so they can agree on a standard of value and measure the debts between each other. Uh, and to have those to be very private arrangements. At least I would like them to be private. I'm sure there are people who would like them to be much more exposed and open and uh, accountable. And then there's uh, there's currencies which are used purely for recognition. You remember the, you read out some of those uh, meanings. Recognition was very prominent in that. 
So you can recognize that somebody has done a day's work by paying them some money. Or you can recognize that they're just a great person. Um, but, but you don't think of the recognition so much with money. You, you, might, uh, you might recognize what people do with gold stars, like in school. So there's some people doing monetary reform who are designing these recognition systems uh, to expose the value that people are creating. And they're sort of using monetary language, but it's not like money at all. But these tools can really help communities to move forward uh, and to recognize what each other is doing. And that's what many people want at the end of the day. They want to be recognized for what they're doing. They don't need to be paid. They don't feel the need uh, always to receive as much as they give or to, or after you've done some work, you know, to be able to contribute to your retirement fund with it. Um, most people's minds aren't working that way. Well, I'm, I'm trying to translate this into my own experience, and I, I think I am on sort of the, the cutting edge of a, a gifting economy. I do rely on the kindness of people out there to support my work and to make it possible. And so far, miraculously, I've been able to do that now going on for the fourth year of, uh, of doing the fourth year, third year, I don't know, something, <laughs> a long amount of time that I've been doing this uh, uh, full time. And, and it's always amazing to me. But um, I, I guess on the note of, of the idea that we want to be recognized, that's certainly true, but I want to be recognized in a way that helps me to feed my family. So <laughs> I think there's a practical um, side to that as well. But but I guess uh, it, it raises an interesting issue for me because, for example, I receive donations and uh, and I sell DVDs and I, I issue subscribe, uh, uh, subscriber newsletters for people who subscribe to my website. And um, I, I am always, of course, extremely appreciative when people donate or when they, they subscribe or what have you. But I, I, I also, at the same time, I hope that the motivation for most people when they do so is not because they feel they're going to get something out of it in terms of they're going to get a subscriber newsletter or what have you. I, don't, I hope that's not the motivation for people who are subscribing or what have you. I would hope it's because people genuinely want to support the work. And I've often reflected on that. It's kind of strange. I mean, it's the same money, um, and I use it in the same way to buy you know food and clothes for my family, but it, it feels different when someone is just paying you because they want you to provide them with something as as opposed to when they're recognizing you for the value you've created. And and it's it's kind of strange to point that out in our current system where there is no way to differentiate that. So I wonder what a, a system that recognizes that at its core would actually look like. You're so right, James, that uh, it's better for the soul because uh, I live from the gifts as well, not usually so much monetary gifts, but uh, hospitality. Um, and it gives me a great deal of freedom because uh, the money that... or, or what feeds me is not so conditional on what I'm doing. Um, and I'm able to be led by the passion. And you showed for some years that you were driven by the passion because you were producing the media first. And then the money comes in recognition of that. And it's a very uh, wholesome uh, and healthy and conscience clear way to live in my view. Well, I couldn't imagine ha having done it any other way. Um, and and uh, I'm always kind of amazed when I see podcasts that have two or three episodes that are suddenly trying to sell T-shirts and mugs and things. And I, I just have to scratch my head and wonder, 
what what they're thinking because generally yes i think people are 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 willing to to re- recognize and reward hard work when they see it but uh, but that's the point it has to they have to see that passion um and and if we built a currency that was more based on that concept i mean i guess we could incentivize people to be following their passions rather than incentivize people to be storing up you know pieces of uh, precious metals and, and burying them in the ground or what have you which seems like a significantly less productive activity for human beings to be engaged in well there's one theory of human nature that says uh, we are so much more productive and valuable society when we can really choose what we want to give and the system at the moment is very much based on coercion you have to get the money uh, first, and then choose what you want to do later if you have any freedom or spare capacity to afford the training. It's a good point. Well, this is, again, this is all very, uh, very true, and I, I, I completely resonate with these ideas, but the question is, how do you implement this in reality? What does it look like? And I understand what you're doing um, in terms of your, your nomading and, and, uh, and relying on hospitality, etc., and that's, it's wonderful that you're able to do that, and it's wonderful that I'm able to do the website and to be supported in that work, but I understand there are a lot of people who are listening to this conversation who can't imagine how they can trans- transform their lives into some some mode that corresponds to that how does that transition work i mean in our current economy as you say we do need these 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 fiat tokens from the government in order to pay our taxes and to be good citizens in whatever republic or state that we're living in how do we how do we reconcile that and how do we begin to transition i mean that's that's as always that's the real question here i think it is extremely difficult and if it wasn't we might have done it already um, for me, I'm able to, by committing myself full time to it and risking certain things, you know, that I might end up homeless one day, um, I can do that. But with people with responsibilities, it has to be a much more gradual process. Uh, and what I think we need to be doing is building relationships with people around us, building trust and starting to give things away and let things come to us when we need them. There's, uh, when I was in New Zealand a few months ago, I met some groups who are doing uh, savings pools. And so they come together every month and they bring uh, maybe a uh, hundred New Zealand dollars per month and they put it all into the pot and then they decide who to lend it to. And so they're saving each other from debt and they have a system of accounting so that at the end of the day, Everybody gets out as much as they put in. But um, what people talk about who are in these pools is that their lives are enriched because they have these strong relationships which are building up. And they get to know each other by meeting each other every month and they build the trust and then they help each other. So there's little uh, formal structures like that which we could work on. Uh, They're not exactly uh, complementary currencies. Complementary currencies aren't the point. The point is to become resilient and to depend on each other more than entities which don't care about us. That is it. That is exactly the point. And, and, and that's so crystal clear when you look at examples like that. And, and to think about how our, the structure of our economy has been set up in a way that our transactions, our interactions with our fellow human beings have become transactions just papered over soulless 
uh, robotic transactions with people around us that are that are exist in, in in simply a sphere of people handing pieces of paper and someone handing a, a product in return, and that's what we've been reduced to. And and I think we've been so far detached from that idea of community that was really the basis for what the economy was. Even a short few generations ago, it was certainly much more centered around that concept of community than it is now. And I think we have to rediscover that. And I like to think that there are ways that the technology that we have at our disposal right now could at least empower us to do so. Of course, it can empower us to become even more robotic and soulless in our transactions with other people, but it could empower us to create those communities. And that's what I'm excited about. And that's why I love to hear about these types of ideas and sharing pools and things like this, things that I don't even know are happening and that I would like to know are happening. And I guess that's that's another part, part of this problem is that a lot of this is happening in ways that Maybe some people in the community might know about it, but others, even those who want to know about it, don't necessarily know about it. So I'm assuming community-exchange.org is a good place to go to to try to start discovering ex- community exchanges in your in your local area. But are there other resources that you could point to, other ways that people can find to get into these types of communities? Well, the whole sharing economy um, meme is very uh, helpful because it points out uh, many, many different kinds of initiatives going on, um, to, often to do with sharing or exchange or ride sharing or uh, people who put books outside their house. So you've got a sort of mini public library and they just trust, you know, that the books will come back. And so there are many, many uh, small steps that can be taken and which are being taken uh, in the cities, especially. So yeah, look up shareable.net. Uh, that's a magazine from uh, San Francisco. And it's full of examples and things going on. Well, I'm going to look that up. I am also, of course, going to check further into Ripple and uh, try to wrap my head around that and perhaps have someone on to talk more about that. And uh, well, One I think of the there's... drawbacks of Ripple is it's, uh, it's complicated to get your head around. <laughs> I'm, I, I think I'm being introduced to that as we speak. So. <laughs> but, um, uh, and uh, we'll look at shareable.net. Of course, all of these links will be in the show notes so people can follow the different threads of our conversation here. Um, we've talked about uh, quite a bit, but there's, of course, many, 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 many more things that we could talk about. Is there anything else that you really want wanted to tell people today while you're uh, while you have their ear i'd like to say that uh, many of the complementary currency projects um, are not actually working very well people are not depending on them and we shouldn't be focusing our attention on building complementary currency projects um, we need to be seeing the bigger picture and the greater reality uh, for me, I'm concentrating my attention away from the monetary mechanisms and I'm asking in the eco-villages, what are you actually producing? What do you need? What can be exchanged? Not how can we issue a currency and what should the design be and how can we persuade people to use it? Yes, we need to be uh, producing what we need and going to our friends and exchanging what we need with them. So we need to look at the economic reality. The currency is just a, happening at a symbolic level. And it's a mistake to think you can change the reality by changing the symbols. Yes? Well, that's so important. Yeah, it's it's cause and effect. And if we think that the, the, the currency is the cause, then we have the cart before the horse. Of course, they do affect each other. But uh, attempts to 
change the currency, replace the currency uh, are inevitably um, met with um, problems from the Metcalf effect, Metcalf's law, which says uh, the network is as useful as it is big and much more useful than it is big. So small networks are not very useful at all. So you can't bootstrap new currencies. And that's always the problem they face. Well, I think we've arrived at very much a similar um, place as we did in our last conversation, which is to say that it's extremely easy to start a, a community uh, currency and, and to literally just load up the software and to, to get the accounting software in place. But it's extremely difficult to build up the community itself, which, of course, is the important part in that equation. So, uh, again, I think that ultimately this comes down to people's willingness to engage in this. And people's apathy, people who don't want to bother with any of this because their their lives are comfortable enough and they can't imagine, you know, transitioning off of it. So, um, again, I think we're in the same place that we were two and a half years ago, just um, hoping that people will understand the importance of what we're talking about. Well, keep bashing away at the same message. I think that's our task, our chore, our labor, our our joy <laughs> in trying to bring this awareness to other people. Well, I uh, my hat's off to you for the work that you're doing. And once again, we will direct people, of course, to mattslats.net. Matthew Slater, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope that we can get an update again, hopefully less than two and a half years from now. Well, my pleasure. Excellent. Thank you very much.